Well, it's my uh, privilege, honor, joy to introduce to you our speaker this morning, Weston Duke. Weston is the very new uh, campus minister at MTSU down in Murfreesboro, uh, RUF campus minister down there. Um, have you even had a chance to finish unpacking that, that new? Weston's here with his wife, Hannah. Uh, glad that they could be here. I don't know if he's going to speak to this, but I'm going to say this, uh, how we can be praying uh, for this brother in the coming months. Uh, not only, and this applies to all of our campus ministers with RUF and the Nashville Presbytery, um, you know, in the, in the beginning weeks and months of a new semester, that's just a tough season where they have really got to put their shoulder into it and their families feel the impact of that as well. So pray for them, especially as they're getting to know new students and such as that. But this guy is doing that. At the same time, he's about to go through the throes of licensure and ordination. And I was reminded of that just in overhearing a conversation between him and Luke just a few minutes ago at the start of the service. So Weston, they're meeting. He's meeting with the Leadership Development Committee Thursday, right? Thursday. Today's the high point of your week. It's going nowhere but down from here. No, I'm just kidding. Come on here. Is my mic on? Am I good? Okay. Well, thank you for that. Welcome, Richard. <laughs> so as he said, we are new to Murfreesboro. My wife and I moved down there in July, but we are not new to Tennessee. I originally grew up in Knoxville, and my wife grew up in Nashville. We both went to the University of Tennessee, and then I worked as an RUF intern in Memphis for three years. But for the past three years, my wife and I have been in St. Louis, where I've been attending Covenant Seminary. And this passage that we're going to look at today became very dear to me while I was in seminary, and I hope that we will all see why. So would you please now turn your attention with me towards God's Word? This is John chapter 15. I'll give you a moment to turn there in your Bibles if you need it. John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. This is part of Jesus' farewell discourse. Some of the last things he's telling his disciples the night before he is arrested and wrongly tried. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples." As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, 
that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you as always for your word. And we thank you for this word that reminds us that that we need you every hour. We need to be abiding in you, Lord. And so as we come to your word, I pray that your spirit would do that. Your spirit would cause our hearts to abide in you now. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I, I said, I am a recent seminary graduate. And if you talk to anyone who's been to seminary, if you talk to Luke or to Richard, they might tell you that it takes a little while to thaw out after seminary. You see, seminary is this weirdly academic environment where you're just talking about theology all the time and you're kind of critiquing what other people think. And you can kind of lose track of what it's like to be a normal person, what the average person's frame of reference is. But now that I've been out of seminary for just a few months, I have had a little bit of time to reflect on my time in seminary. And so I want to start out this morning by confessing to you my greatest vice in seminary. Now, before your minds run too far afield, let me go ahead and tell you that my greatest vice was the lure of productivity. You see, I had friends who would joke that I carved pads in the sidewalk from my daily trek to the library. One of the library workers actually joked that they watched me bring in my sleeping bag on Monday mornings and take it out with me on Saturday nights. Another friend, after I repeatedly declined his request to play flag football, asked me, what do you do for fun? But this obsession with productivity, I don't think is a vice that only I am susceptible to. No, I think it's actually a disease that our whole society has caught. You know, if you get on your smartphone and you go to the the app store, you will find that there's actually a whole category of apps that are labeled productivity. And we have all of these, these podcasts and planners, everything promising to make us more productive people. And if you say, okay, yeah, I kind of see how our society is infatuated by productivity, but I don't know if that describes me. Well, maybe you've experienced this under a different label, and that is busyness. How many times has someone asked you, hey, how are you doing? And you respond, oh, you know, we're busy. Well, being busy and being productive aren't inherently bad things in themselves, but they can be when we look to them for something that they're not. We can look to them as the means to a meaningful life. You know, if you're here this morning, I would say that you, you probably want to be a good worker, you want to be a good spouse, a good parent, maybe a good student, and probably even a good Christian. And we can look at productivity and busyness as the path to fulfillment of those desires. But where does that leave us? I'm going to guess that it may not leave you with the meaningful, joy-filled life that you've always wanted. It leaves us feeling exhausted, spread too thin. Well, the Bible has a different term to describe a meaningful life. It's not a busy or productive life. It's fruitful. And in this passage, Christ claims that in order to live a fruitful life, a life that is joyful and God-glorifying, we must abide in him. 
In order to truly bear fruit, we must abide in Christ. And so this morning, we're going to look at three aspects of abiding in Christ. The power, the pruning, and the practice of abiding in Christ. So first, the power. Jesus opens this discourse by saying, I am the true vine. Now, whether you realized it or not, Jesus is actually drawing on the whole story of the Old Testament in a rather masterful way. Because in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was often described as a vine. After Adam and Eve forsook God's blessing in the Garden of Eden, God chose Abraham and the nation of Israel to receive his blessing so that they would bless the world, filling it with his justice, with his mercy, with his goodness, and his love. Now, by the way, this is actually a pretty good definition of what it means to live a fruitful life, to experience God's blessing so that we can be a blessing to others. But if you're familiar with the story of the Old Testament, you might know that the nation of Israel did not fulfill this purpose that God had for them. And this is where the vine metaphor comes in. So the prophet Isaiah writes in chapter 5 that God dug a fertile hill and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and he hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded only wild grapes. Again, in Jeremiah 2, the Lord says to the prophet, Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you become degenerate and become a wild vine? You see, when Christ says that I am the true vine, what he's saying is I am the true Israel. I am the one through whom true blessing ultimately comes. I am the one that brings forth the fruit that God desires. And he begins to draw out the implications of this metaphor in verse 4. He says, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Christ is clearly claiming that we cannot truly live a fruitful life unless we abide in him. But that's a challenge to our American mindset of self-sufficiency, isn't it? Because we think that if I can just keep going, if I can work a little bit harder, then things are going to start to change in my life. Or if I can just keep things under my control, then my marriage and my kids, they're going to turn out okay. Or if I can just make good enough grades and go to the right school, then I can get a good job and then I'll have a good life. And we need to hear Christ say to us, apart from me, you can do nothing. But on the other side of this, Jesus says in verse 5, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And did you notice that he didn't put any qualifications on this statement that we might be prone to add? He doesn't say anything about social standing or, or life circumstances. He doesn't say anything about our jobs or our age or, or really anything else. The only qualification for bearing fruit is abiding in Christ. And I know that can be hard for us to believe, so maybe an example will help to convince us. Some of you may be familiar with the name Johnny Erickson Tata. Well, 51 years ago, Johnny misjudged the depth of water and dove headfirst into the Chesapeake Bay 
fracturing two of her cervical vertebrae. At 17 years old, she became a quadriplegic. Now, in the world's eyes, her life is basically over because she had become completely dependent on others. And you might have thought that she had no ability to live a productive life as a contributing member of society. But in a recent reflection, she talked about how this accident drove her to seek out Christ and to abide in him. And if you know anything about her story, you will know that God has used her life to bear the fruit of his kingdom for the last 50 years. She filled the world with his beauty by learning how to paint and draw using only her teeth. She went on to write over 40 books, and her ministry has impacted millions of people all over the world whose lives have also been affected by disabilities. Her life demonstrates to us that whoever abides in Christ, he it is that bears much fruit. So the question that we need to ask ourselves is, is there something that we think needs to be different about our lives in order to be more fruitful? You know, we come up with all of these if-onlys. If only I had a better job with a little bit more money, if only my kids were a little bit older, if only I had more energy like when I was younger, if only I was as smart or as athletic as some of my friends, then I could really do something with my life. But Christ comes in and he wipes away all of these if-onlys. And he says, if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. Now the results They may not be what the world values. They may not even be the change that we hope to see in our lives. But Christ promises that if we abide in him, then God is going to fill our lives with his blessing. And he's going to fill the lives of others with his blessing as well. That is the power of abiding in Christ. But he goes on to say something that is a little more uncomfortable and that is the pruning of abiding in Christ. So he continues this vine metaphor, and he talks about two different types of branches, ones that do bear fruit and ones that don't. He says in the latter half of verse 2, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now, if you're a gardener, you know that this is pretty standard agricultural practice. If you have a crop, you don't just let the thing grow wild. You've got to trim it here and pluck it there in order to get the most yield from it. And Jesus is saying that God does the same thing to us when we abide in him. He pokes and he prods at our lives. He nips and he tucks. Sometimes he even lops off things in our life so that we can receive more of his blessing and be a greater blessing to others. Now, I don't really fancy myself much of a gardener, but I did recently become a first-time homeowner. And so I find C.S. Lewis's analogy of a house an apt comparison. And I believe this quote is in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along with me. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes, Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that these jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. 
But presently, he starts knocking about the house in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one that you thought of. Throwing out a new wing there, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards, you thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace, and he intends to come and live in it himself. Now, Lewis's analogy helps us to draw out two points of application. And that first is that God prunes those who abide in him, but it may not make much sense to us. There may be things in our lives that we see as, as harmless. We may even see them as good because they add to our feeling of busyness or productivity. But the Lord may see them as actually getting in the way of being more fruitful. And so what does he do? He takes them away, sometimes temporarily, sometimes permanently. But second, God's pruning can hurt, sometimes a lot. And in those moments, we may be tempted to voice the question that Lewis does in this passage. God, what on earth are you up to? We may even turn our backs on God. And it's here that we have to remember that God is a good gardener. He prunes us because he loves us. He loves you so much that he's not willing to allow anything, including you, to get in the way of his purposes for you. And so when he prunes us, as the author of Hebrews says, it's for our good that we may share in his holiness. But Jesus also talks about pruning a second type of branch. In the first half of verse 2, he says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And in verse 6, he also says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Now, whether you realize it or not, Jesus is again making another Old Testament allusion here, this time to the prophet Ezekiel. And if you didn't pick up on that illusion, that's okay. I'm going to guess a lot of you are probably not reading Ezekiel in your quiet times because it's frankly a pretty weird book. But in chapter 15 of Ezekiel, we also see this imagery of wood from a vine being thrown into a fire. And it's used to describe the people of Jerusalem facing God's judgment. And that the reason they're facing God's judgment is because these people who outwardly looked like they were part of the people of God, inwardly had nothing to do with God. They weren't repentant, they weren't obedient to him, and they didn't truly worship him. And so Jesus uses this illusion to say that it's possible for us to look like we are connected to Christ outwardly and yet inwardly be disconnected from his life-giving power. This is what he says in, in verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit. Now, we just said that if we are truly abiding in Christ, then we're going to bear much fruit. So how can we be in him and not bear fruit? Well, it's because that person is not truly abiding in Christ. They only outwardly look like they are in Christ. And the, the apostle Judas Iscariot is a great example of this. You know, he was a part of Jesus' inner ring. 
He followed Jesus around for three years doing ministry with him. And on the night of the Last Supper, when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, none of the other apostles assumed it was going to be Judas. They all questioned if it was going to be them. But we know that in the end, Judas was never actually in Christ. He only appeared to be. And this is a challenge for us who live in the Bible Belt because it means that it's possible to grow up in the church and to swim in the waters of cultural Christianity and yet actually be disconnected from Christ. And so we must examine ourselves to see if we truly are abiding in Christ. And how do we do that? Well, Jesus would have us believe that the best way is to look at the fruit of our lives. And so I have some homework for you, a challenge. This week, I would encourage you to to talk to someone you trust. Maybe that's your spouse or maybe that's a, a close friend. But ask them what fruit they see in your life. This might actually be an encouraging exercise because they may see fruit growing in your life that had gone undetected by you. But it might also be a reality check that shows us that our lives don't show the evidence of abiding in Christ that maybe we thought they did. Okay, so at this point, we've talked a lot about abiding in Christ, but what does that actually look like? Well, that leads us to our final point, which is the practice of abiding in Christ. And I want to highlight three practices that Jesus relates to abiding in him. And the first practice is the word. If you look with me at verse 7, Jesus says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, then ask whatever you wish. You'll notice that this is an if-then conditional statement. And the if part of the statement actually has two conditions. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. And we could say that these, these two conditions actually point to the same reality. They're like two sides of the same coin. And they tell us that one of the most crucial ways that we abide in Christ is to allow his word to dwell in us richly. And that's why when we gather every Sunday morning for worship, someone like me or Richard or Luke or someone else gets up here and preaches the word because we constantly need to be fed on the word of Christ. But if you're anything like me, you may leave church on Sunday morning and by lunch, you've completely forgotten about what was spoken at church. That happens to me even when I'm the one preaching. And so we need to have the word in front of us constantly, every day. And that may look like committing to reading your Bible personally or with your family, but this could also look like talking about God's word with one another. In Colossians 3.17, Paul says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And you know what he follows up that statement with? Teaching and admonishing one another. One of the most crucial ways that Christ's words abide in us is by talking about it with one another. The second practice that Jesus relates to abiding in him is prayer. Also in verse 7, he says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. If we are abiding in Christ, then that means we're going to be praying and asking for things in the name 
of Jesus. Now, we might rebuff at the seemingly open-endedness of this promise. Like, can we really just pray things in Jesus' name like they're magic words? Well, if you follow the logic of what Jesus is saying, then our prayers are going to be shaped by his words as they abide in us so that we're asking for things that are agreeable to God's will. But I also wonder, if we take Jesus' words here seriously, can we really ask whatever we wish? Are there things in our lives, in our communities, or in our world that we're actually not willing to pray for? Like maybe you have a family member that you've been trying really hard to love, but you just don't see any change happening. And so you grow weary in praying for them. Or maybe there's, there's a problem in, in our community or our country that you think is just never going to get fixed because our politicians can never get on the same page. But Christ says that when we are abiding in him and praying for the fruit of his kingdom to grow, then we can ask whatever we wish, and it will be done for you. The final practice that Jesus relates to abiding in him is obedience. In verse 10, he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Now, this corrects any misconceptions that we might have that abiding in Christ means living this contemplative life in which we spend a lot of alone time with God. Now, don't get me wrong, we need those times of silence and solitude. But Jesus clearly says here that abiding in him means that we are actively growing in obedience to his commandments. And in this context, the commandment is to love one another. We didn't read this far, but in verse 12, right after this passage, he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Abiding in Christ actually means that we're going out in mission, that we're going out in the world and getting our hands dirty by loving our neighbors. And so if we want to live a meaningful and fruitful life, it doesn't come from being productive or busier. It comes from being obedient to Jesus' commandment to love one another. Now, lest you walk away from this sermon thinking that okay, I just need to pray more, and I need to read my Bible more, and I need to work harder at obedience. Let me look again to verse 9. Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. You see, I think one of the reasons that we like to be productive and busy, even with with spiritual things, is because it, it makes us feel like a worthwhile an important person. And if we are productive enough, then that maybe means that we're worthwhile enough to receive love from other people. Maybe even to receive God's love and favor. But Jesus clearly tells us here that he has already placed his love upon us. If you you see where this passage is in the scope of John's gospel, Jesus is saying these words the night before he's about to prove his love to you by dying on the cross. We have already received God's love. And these practices of the word, of the prayer, and obedience 
are the ways that we simply dwell in his love. It's the way that we taste and experience God's love for us. And so when we use these practices to abide in him and in his love, we're sure to experience God's pruning in our lives, but we're also sure to experience God's power. As he bears his fruit in us, fruit that fills our lives with joy and glorifies God. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your Son into this world to show us that you have already placed your love upon us. And Lord, I pray that your Spirit would drive us to abide in you through your Word, through praying to you, and through seeking to be obedient. And Lord, I pray that you would manifest your power in us by bearing fruit that glorifies you and that builds your kingdom on this earth. And I pray that you would give us courage to also face your pruning. You would give us trust and faith to believe that when you come into our lives and that you prune us, it is for our good so that we can experience more of your blessing and share that love and blessing with others. Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen.